Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Welcome, Strictly Facts fam, or should I say, que tal? Welcome to another episode. Did you catch our hint from two weeks ago? Today, we're discussing Puerto Rico, its amazing history of activism, and what exactly citizenship means to an island still colonized by the U.S. Today, to chat with us about the history of her home, Nina Vasquez is here with us today. So welcome, Mr. Strictly Facts, Nina. Thank you for joining us. Please let us know a bit about yourself and what you're passionate about. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, I'm Nina. Um, I'm originally from Puerto Rico. I'm the west side of the island. That's super important. No, just because just the way that I grew up is very different from the metro area, which is the San Juan area. San Juan is very much Americanized. So I definitely have a different view from other folks that like live, grew up and born in the metro area of the island. I moved to the United States when I was 13 as a part of the economic recession happening on the island. I am one of the millions of Puerto Ricans that had to leave their home because of that. Um, started in 2006 and it's still going on today. So yeah, it's been, it's been a long time. I have two bachelor's degrees, one in um, criminal justice and the other in political science. However, both have a concentration in racism. Then I just recently graduated from the University of Connecticut with a uh, master's degree in Puerto Rican, Caribbean, and Latin American um, studies with an emphasis on um, Caribbean history, but more specifically Puerto Rico. Um, And then also like I'm a community activist. So I do a lot of things when it comes to like gender violence here in the United States and in Puerto Rico. um, Also, as well as trying to fight against that struggle against, you know, anti-Blackness in our communities and things like that. What got you interested in studying Puerto Rican history? I can probably guess, but I'll let you tell us. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, a few things, right? So my great-grandfather, who I had the pleasure of having in my life for a very long time, he died at 110. He was a Puerto Rican nationalist. So nationalism ran very deep in my family in that case. So basically, um, Puerto Rican nationalism is like, the very, very radical fight for Puerto Rican independence. I and mean, he was part of that. So always, all the time was talking about um, history and you know what he lived through. Um, he was 110 when he passed away. So he did get to see the very beginnings of the US invasion and things like that on the island and, and what that meant for him and what that meant for my grandmother and how that impacted my whole family. And then I moved stateside And I saw that in my history classes, I wasn't hearing anything about Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico didn't exist. While they're talking about history to a class full of Puerto Ricans, whether we were islanders or whether we were born stateside, you're talking to a class full of Puerto Ricans and Black students and completely erasing Black and Puerto Rican history. So I thought that was very interesting. So that definitely radicalized me a little bit into thinking like, why are we not talked about? Why is this lacking? What's the reason for this? We have fought in these wars. We have influenced these policies. We have influenced the United States um, society and we're not discussed at all. So those are definitely my two points as to why I got into history. Sometimes we just got to do the things ourselves. Yeah. So jumping into our discussion today, would you mind briefly talking to us about Puerto Rico's early colonial history, 
our histories, especially I think in the Caribbean of colonial rule can be so complicated, sometimes changing hands multiple times, which is also the case for Puerto Rico, for Jamaica, for a number of other places. So let's start there in our discussion. Yeah, man. Puerto Rico is very interesting. I usually tell people before I start talking about Puerto Rico is whatever type of preconceived notion that you have, you need to like throw it out the window. Um, Whether it comes to like any type of like history of the U.S. and how racism works in the U.S. and how it works in Puerto Rico, you have to throw that out the window because it it won't work. It will confuse people. Um, And it's very contradicting. What I always tell people is like an experiment island, right? Um, So first, um, Spain ends up being its first like imperialist power on the island. And they do a lot of harm, a lot, a lot of harm. And I think collectively, um, Caribbean and Puerto Rican and Latin American wise, we try to underplay um, the harm that Spain did because we try to look for other people to blame. But Spain did do a lot of harm. (laughs) So Spain grabs Puerto Rico and starts basically essentially putting it in the middle of like the Atlantic slave trade. So while Puerto Rico wasn't exchanging things directly with everyone, it was still one of the biggest stops when it came to exchanging enslaved folks. So Puerto Rico becomes that hub. And then what ends up happening is that people who are enslaved in Cuba start moving to Puerto Rico. People who are enslaved in Haiti start moving to Puerto Rico. People who are enslaved in Dominican Republic start moving to Puerto Rico and so on and so forth. So Puerto Rico then becomes this very, very unique um, multicultural place even before the United States invaded. And that honestly gets Spain a little bit upset because then they feel like they're starting to lose grip on Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico is basically um, known for their sugarcane, just like most of the Caribbean. So essentially Spain starts implementing all these rules because they're losing hold of Cuba during this time. So I'm talking about like the 19th century. So they're losing hold of Cuba. They're losing hold of of Mexico as well. They're having a lot of revolts um, and a lot of issues in the Caribbean. So one of the first things they say is like, well, we need to start quote, unquote, domesticating these people on this island of Puerto Rico, because if they get any ideas, then essentially we're going to lose all of our power. They definitely start with like experimenting in Puerto Rico when it comes to like policies like the Black Code. Um, And the Black Code is like one of Spain's biggest policies on like, we know, um, if any person who's Black, enslaved or free, raises their hand at a white person, whether they're from Spain or descendants of Spain or whatever, just if they're white, you have full autonomy to hurt them in any way you see fit. And that becomes a very, very big jumping point for the beginnings of this pro-independent movement on the island. So they're seeing that now they're, the Spanish are starting to mobilize and become more violent, not to say that they weren't always violent, right? But now they're putting it in policy and now they're legalizing it. So it takes a different form. So then you have Black academics in Puerto Rico and Cuba as well. You have biracial academics and then you have um, just activists and jibaros, which are people who were considered like lower class white people. Um, you have all these people coming together and banding and say, you know what, Spain is actually pretty messed up and we have to band together and we have to take this. So you create this multiracial, multicultural movement on the island in the 19th century, and you start revolting, and it gets Spain very, very upset. 
because now they're saying, well, if we can't extend our whiteness to the poor white, then how else are we going to get control back? Um, so I think discussing Puerto Rico in the terms of like race and class is very, very important, especially with Spain, because while Spain did try to extend that whiteness card to poor white people, it did work to one extent, but on the other extent, it really didn't. Also, understanding that race in Puerto Rico and racism and slavery was very, very different. So you did have enslaved um, Black folks, but you also did have enslaved white folks. And they did not have any such thing as the one drop rule, or they didn't have any such thing as like generational slavery or anything like that. I think a lot of people get that confused and people get very confused whenever you say there's free Black people in Puerto Rico during the 19th century. Um, it's very hard for people to like really wrap their minds around that. And I think a lot of that has to do is because of what we consume in American history and understanding that American history, the racism and the institution of slavery in the United States just developed very differently from the Caribbean. So a lot of the biggest activists during the 19th century were Black and very well educated. That's another point that's really important. That's going to segue into us talking about like just the independence movement in the 60s and 30s and things like that. So Spain ends up saying, you know what, we heard you after this really big multicultural, uh, multiracial revolt that they had known as El Grito de Lares. Um, he goes, we heard you, we're tired of this, <laughs> we're going to leave. So you know what, we're going to draft a letter that's called La Carta Autonomica. And it was written in 1897. And it's really important to know that date. So it's written in 1897. And basically it states, Spain states, listen, we're going to grant you independence. In no way, shape, or form did they ever discuss remotely whether they wanted to give people citizenship. That was not even a question. What they were saying was, we're going to give you full autonomy. So it's either literally nothing or all, essentially. So we're going to grant you autonomy, but like as the years go out. So first, what we're going to do is we're going to draft like this type of um, constitution. So they draft this constitution, and the constitution is really important because what Spain drafts is they say, the people in power in this free republic of Puerto Rico can only be descendants of Spain, period. So again, they're already starting to make markings of like who can be in power and who cannot, again, leaving out Black folks. However, the question always arises of whether or not what happens if um, there is a Black person who is a descendant of Spain, right? You know, can they qualify? Because it just says descendant of Spain. It doesn't say you have to be white. So again, um, looking at how race plays a very different um, connotation in the Caribbean, then it says that they're going to implement this decolonization board, essentially, which is very ironic for a place that colonized Puerto Rico. So they're going to pick a board of like five people, and then these five people are going to be there for X amount of years, and they're going to help Puerto Rico transition from being a colony to becoming its own free republic. Then a few months later, Spain gets into a war with the United States and the Spanish-American War. And then um, before they even signed off the letter of autonomy, they go, you know what, Puerto Rico, so sorry, so, so sorry. Um, now you're the United States. So don't even worry about, it. you know what we wrote? that Disregard it, sorry, it's done. It was nice, it was a big psych. So now we don't have to deal with you. And that came to a shock to a lot of people, especially a lot of activists, and especially a lot of people who identified as Black. Because then that meant that they felt that all their hard work didn't mean anything. So you have, during that moment where Spain hands off Puerto Rico to the United States, you have a lot of Black people leaving Puerto Rico 
to move to Cuba, to move to Dominican Republic, to move to Jamaica, to move to Haiti, because they would rather live somewhere else than live in a colony. So this is a very, very big narrative that's happening during that time. However, it wasn't enough to really damage or um, lower down the Black population in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico was still very predominantly Black, it still is. And so I think that's another misconception that a lot of people have that after that time, a lot of Black people left. A lot of Black people did leave, but again, it wasn't enough to hurt or change the demographic of the island. But again, I think it does show the dedication that they had to the movement of being independent, that they would much rather leave than live in a colonized Puerto Rico. So you hit um, 1898, and that's when um, the U.S. comes and invades. And again, everything changes once again. And I think it's really important to note that the Puerto Rican identity, so when people really decided to call themselves Puerto Rican, comes into the late 19th century. So prior to that, it was a lot of like, I don't know what we're called. Are we called Puerto Rican? Are we not called Puerto Rican? What makes a Puerto Rican? What doesn't make a Puerto Rican? Blah, blah, blah. A lot of the conversation was, well, this is the Spanish and then this is everybody else. So you start really coining the term Puerto Rican um, in the late 19th century. Thank you for that, like literally brief, but amazing summary. So as you said, right, 1898 marks that point where the U.S. assumes military control over Puerto Rico, hence this colonial relationship that we know of today or the startings of the colonial relationship we know of today. What were some of those changes and challenges brought on by this change of status? A Little Bit De Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit De Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, wow. So many changes ended up happening, right? But one thing remained the same. So the remaining thing was, now there's an established identity on the island and they're called Puerto Ricans and nobody could change that. And that is what a lot of people held on to still to this day. So what you end up having is the U.S. comes in and they start looking for how can they exploit the island, right? What is this island good for? One of the main reasons was we're going to keep this island because it's dead smack in the Caribbean and it's perfect for military strategy. So if we were at war with Latin America or wherever, we're dead smack in the middle of the Caribbean and we could get whatever we need from it. So that was their biggest takeaway. Their other second takeaway definitely had to do with just how beautiful it was, right? They knew that they could make it a tourist attraction. They could generate money. The third part was the relationship that Puerto Ricans had with the Caribbean. They could exploit that. So if they needed to get to Cuba and they needed to, I don't know, control Cuba as an example, they know that, you know, they could use some Puerto Ricans to help, right? Um, because there is a bond between both islands. So again, a lot of strategy, anything that really had to do with military and strategy, Puerto Rico was the place for them. That was one of the main reasons why the United States wanted it. But the United States gets in and quickly starts changing everything. So implements a um, law that controls imports and exports. So um, this is really interesting because it's still, you know, this is a law that was created in the 1900s and we still have it today. It's impacted us now, but it impacted us the most during Hurricane Maria. So it's called the Maritime Marine Act. 
basically what the act says is that Puerto Rico does not have any control over the imports and exports, period. So example, and this happened during Hurricane Maria with these countries specifically. So Jamaica wants to send aid to Puerto Rico on a boat. It takes 10 days from Jamaica to Puerto Rico in general, just boat-wise. But you can't do that direct transition from Jamaica to Puerto Rico. So you would have to go and put all your goods on a ship in Jamaica, right? Ship it to Florida, then have Florida take it off the Jamaican ship, put it on a ship of the Americas, and then ship it to Puerto Rico. So that then doubles the time. Something that could be done in 10 days is done in a month and a half. Um, because there's so many importing and exporting and changing of boats, it then increases taxes by like three times than what it would actually be. Creating a really, really big disparity and making items in Puerto Rico super expensive. So we saw this during Hurricane Maria, especially with Jamaica, where Jamaica was like, um, listen, like people are in need. Um, we have all this aid. Can we please send these items to Puerto Rico um, directly? And the United States is like, no, you know that we have this act and you know that how it runs. You've been a part of this act for more than a hundred years. So like, if you knew if this was gonna happen then you should have started sending your aid 10 days before. And Jamaica's like, it was a hurricane. <laughs> like, you know, like how are we supposed to know that it was going to hit Puerto Rico this bad? So what the United States ends up doing is what they did in 2017 when the hurricane hit was what they call the symbolic lift. And they lifted the Jones Act for 10 days. Ironically, because what ended up happening was, so Jamaica sends um, their stuff and they get there on day 10. So the American Coast Guard on the island then says, sorry, it's day 10, you have to go back. All the aid is already there. All you have to do is accept it. But the fact that it got there on the 10th day when the lift ended, they had to send back um, the aid to Jamaica do the whole transition again. So um, the aid from Jamaica ended up getting to Puerto Rico like three months later. It was a very, very rough thing to talk about. But again, you see like this is something that happened that was placed in the 1900s and it's impacting us today. So that was definitely one of the biggest changes that the United States brought in. At that same year, that's when citizenship was forced on Puerto Ricans. So a lot of Puerto Ricans did not care for American citizenship. They really didn't want it. They didn't see the need for it. However, the United States needed people for war. They needed people to recruit. And so they thought that Puerto Rico would have been good for it. Also because Puerto Ricans knew what it meant to live in a tropical area. So they were good for like warfare. So basically they put a lot of African-Americans and Puerto Ricans on the front line. Um, again, with like prejudice and racist notions in mind when they did all of this. But however, the citizenship that we got from the United States is really interesting because it's a second class citizenship. So essentially like Puerto Ricans on the island cannot vote for presidency. They also don't have any representation in Congress, but they're highly taxed. Uh, any changes that happen in the United States does impact Puerto Rico, but again, no representation at all. You know, also one of the things that goes really underlooked is the fact that uh, the United States has the ability to pick and choose which parts of the constitution they want to apply to Puerto Rico. So there's this misconception that the constitution automatically applies to Puerto Ricans because um, of the citizenship, but um, actually not. So when they wrote it up, they actually said that they can pick and choose which parts of the constitution they deem suitable for Puerto Rico. And also if they granted the citizenship, they knew that then it would be very much harder for Puerto Ricans to then want to advocate for independence. So they wouldn't have to deal with that part. So they thought, 
So it complicates everything for sure. You have them controlling your imports and exports on top of them now implementing the citizenship that you didn't even want in the first place that now automatically can draft you into their wars. Then they come in and they implement um, a gag law, which um, is a definitely still a hot topic today. So the gag law basically said they implemented an all English policy. So in schools, at job courses and everything like that, in schools, it harms a lot of people because what ends up happening is you have little kids trying to learn Spanish, right? They're trying to learn like the grammatical rules of Spanish. And then all of a sudden you take that out. You're like, nope, you know, now we're learning English. And then you cause all these students to flunk out. So you have kids dropping out of school at third grade, first grade level because they can't do it. Then you have teachers who, again, are leaving their jobs because they have to learn a whole different language to then do, to then do their job. So you then create like this really big disparity in the education system and you create a hole, which then benefits the U.S., of course, because then the people who could stay in the education system are the military children and the rich. So that's what ends up happening. Uh, my grandmother was definitely one of part of that because this happened like in the 1930s and it stayed for a while. And my grandmother was harmed. I think she ended up dropping out like at sixth grade. She was like, I can't do this. Then with that gag law comes like the suppression of any type of like assembly. Puerto Ricans were not allowed to assemble. They were also were not allowed to have anything that was pro-independence. Um, so any flags, any Puerto Rican flags had to automatically be taken down if they were associated with any nationalist or independent sentiment. During that year came the change of the color of the flag, which is why when people always get very confused why Puerto Rico has so many different colors with their flags. So the Puerto Rican flag with the sky blue, which is the light blue, is Puerto Rico, I guess, before the United States. And then um, Puerto Rican flag with the navy blue is after the United States invasion. So the United States wanted them to change the flag to match the United States with their navy blue. So there's a lot of change, cultural changes, linguistic changes, um, racial changes going on as well. So, you know, you have all these military people, um, American, white American military people settling in Puerto Rico, having sex with our women, and then reproducing all these children and then leaving because they don't deem Puerto Rican women to be fit. Go figure. So there's a lot of like demographic changes happening as well. So this is also causes a lot of issue of like identity, unfortunately. So like, where am I? Where do I fall into this Puerto Rican? This category is going on during all this time. So um, again, a lot of changes and it harms Puerto Rico deeply. Another big change that came with the US was um, Puerto Ricans were not allowed to have their own governor up until 1950. So it was in the 1950s where Puerto Rico was allowed to actually elect a Puerto Rican governor. Um, other than that, prior to that, it was all um, military appointed officers. And military appointed officers who are white, who have never been to a tropical area before, uh, who have never learned Spanish before or anything like that, that didn't know how to even govern a place like that, um, were the ones in power. But again, you have this very big pushback in the Gag Law 53 that was limiting all these things by the independence movement on the island. Are there any questions so far? 
not necessarily a question because I've read about the gag law. And I think one thing that, you know, when you want to talk about parallels across the Caribbean, right, we may have linguistic differences. Um, you know, we obviously have the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, the English Caribbean, but there are so many things um, when you look at our colonial histories that are paralleled, right? So I'm sure because of the gag law, the appearance or the value of Puerto Rican culture, right? You know, being able to speak Spanish and what comes with that is obviously, there becomes a hierarchy, U.S. imposed hierarchy rather. And that even makes me think back to our languages episode that we had a few, probably a few months ago now, right? Where we talked about this creation of how Jamaican Patois, which, you know, Patois in itself is a coded word, right? Jamaica's language, Jamaican language, is seemed as less than, you know, compared to this quote unquote standard English, right? The way that these colonial powers have so heavily imposed and sort of made us question ourselves um, in a sense, right? We could go on and on <laughs> um, on that realm, but I mean, that's just some one thing that came to mind as you were talking. I guess from here, I definitely want us to talk about what the nationalist movement in the 20th century looked like. Yeah, so the nationalist movement in the 20th century was pretty cool. It was one of my favorite things to talk about. I say it was cool, but it was very, very violent. <laughs> um, but they had to be, right? Um, they were dealing with a lot of counter-violence as well, so they had to act a certain way. I really want to talk about it in a non-male-centered way, um, because I think whenever we tend to talk about the Puerto Rican nationalist movement, we tend to focus on Pedro Albizu Campo as the face of it and which which he was right i'm not taking that away from him at all he absolutely was the face and you know for many reasons um he lived in the united states so he understood what it meant to live in both areas he went to school in the united states so he was very well educated you know he was also black and you know all these other things are involved in that so i'm not definitely not taking that away from him he's just a very interesting character as well but i do i will give him his flowers however i really do want to presented in a different lighting. The nationalist movement was very much so a woman's movement. It was very much so a black movement. It was very much so a working class movement. So he ends up opening up this um, narrative, right? He thinks nationalism is very important and it's very important to distinguish between Puerto Rican nationalism and then um, US nationalism. So US nationalism usually takes a very like racist, white centered, type of like narrative like if you're not white then like you know it's not patriotic and things like that there's a lot of racism involved in American nationalism when it comes to Puerto Rican nationalism it's a little bit different I always tell like my students or just people in general to really think about it like um, the black nationalist movement here in the U.S. where they were really trying to put forth the fact that we are not less than we are human we are this, we are that, right? We deserve rights, we deserve freedom, we deserve liberation. So that's where the Puerto Rican nationalism comes in. So basically they're saying, um, we are not white American, we will never be white American, and we do not want to be white American. Um, our needs are different. You know, we are black or we are um, biracial, we are, cause you know, they were definitely were very big on inclusivity and we need these things, right? So again, making that distinguishable idea between what is American nationalism and what is like Puerto Rican nationalism. They're very different. They're not even remotely in the same ballpark. So Pedro Albizu Campo ends up creating um, this coalition and this party, this political party. 
And he says, we will get independence by any means necessary. And he meant that, any means necessary. So whether it was armed, whether people died, um, and people were willing to die for the cause. And that's something that really mind blown the United States was that people were genuinely willing to die for the island. And I think that became very noticeable when it came to their military tactics. So one of the biggest reasons why the Nationalist Party as a whole specifically was very militant is because Pedro Albizu Campo was in the U.S. military. So he knew um, strategies and militant um, just ideas to like really carry this on. So it's very interesting him as a person, how he takes the script and flips it on the U.S. Um, so he's basically like, how are you mad at me when you taught me how to do this? You know what I mean? Like, you can't be mad at me. You should be mad at yourself. So he's a really cool character when it comes to that. So what he ends up doing, he, help, he helps train women as well. So you have women who are armed from all walks of life, rich, poor, in the middle, in between, Black, white, biracial, or in women who identify it as Taina. Um, you have everything across the board, right? Um, another thing is that Puerto Rican nationalism was not only like just Puerto Rican, if that makes sense. They were very well connected to like black power movements in the US and also in the Caribbean as a whole. Another thing was their biggest thing was they wanted to connect to the nationalism that began in the 19th century. So they wanted to honor those who fought in the 19th century um, in the 20th century. And I think they, they did a really good job with that. So they took like their manifestos from the 19th century and they like tweaked them to fit the society that they were in. So you had again, very interesting in the nationalist movement, you had people who were farmers, you had people who were working in the agricultural world, you had people who were professors, you had people from all walks of life literally banding together and doing these things. So you have events like um, La Masacre de Ponce, which is one of the biggest events in Puerto Rican history and one of the saddest, which um, basically it's um, the Nationalist Party was going to do a march in, in the town of Ponce in Puerto Rico. And then um, the U.S. military shot a whole bunch of people down and killed them. Again, a very blatant way of the United States trying to take down those who speak out against U.S. imperialism. I always find it very interesting when the United States says we have never shot down our own people. Um, that's a lie. <laughs> You've seen it time and time again. Quite literally, they go into um, the town of Ponce, they shoot out a whole bunch of nationalist um, movement um, members, and then they start saying that the nationalists turned against each other and they were shooting at each other. So um, they end up creating this plot and they staged a lot of pictures that were in the newspaper during this time were staged and things like that. So everything changed, right? And that starts angering a lot of people across the island because they know it was a lie. They know that this was plotted. You know, there was a lot of people there and they saw it themselves that it was happening. Then you have that big event that happens, which then further radicalizes the nationalist movement. Then you have in the 1950s, Lolita Lebron and then her crew. Um, Lolita Lebron is again, another Puerto Rican nationalist woman who recently died. And she's one of my favorite figures in Puerto Rican history. 
she basically goes with her nationalist friends to Washington, D.C. and shoots up Congress. And her famous line is, I, you know, I came here to die for Puerto Rico. She shoots up Congress while Congress is in session. Her main goal was to shoot up the president. Um, she wanted to assassinate the president of the United States. And again, it's just this result of built up frustration of we're asking you to let us go. We're asking you for this. It makes sense. Why aren't you letting us go? And then why aren't you letting us go? But then why do you keep on abusing us? So a lot of things are happening during this time that leads to that um, big event in the 1950s. So you have um, the U.S. with their eugenics movement in Puerto Rico, um, the injection of cancer into Puerto Ricans to experiment, also doing um, military experiments that have to do with uh, nuclear weapons in Puerto Rico. So like they're messing up um, the environment on the island and they're fooling around with chemicals and it's impacting people as well. Then they have the forced sterilization of Puerto Rican women on the island and also kidnappings of women on the island. There's a lot happening during this time. A lot that the nationalist movement is picking up on and is using to weaponize against the United States, rightfully so. But the United States quickly start suppressing them very, very quick. The fact that they lasted so long from the 19, let's start, I would say that it started like in the 1920s um, all the way to like the 1960s. That is a big um, gap, but that's still pretty quick for them to suppress them in that amount of time. So the United States quickly starts suppressing them. They start by doing policies. They start by um, doing different government tactics. But the most important ones are they start actually just violently outright shooting people down, killing people, incarcerating people down. That's their biggest tactic. So they end up taking one of the biggest figurines of the movement, which is Pedro Alviso Campo, and they incarcerate him. They incarcerate him, but then they also start playing around with like nuclear weapons in his jail cell um, to create chemical burns on him. So they were literally experimenting on him through his cell wall. And he was a chemist. So interestingly, when he was in his cell, I guess he was, he was feeling like his body was like in pain and he just didn't understand why. So he would constantly tell people like, listen, I think something's happening and nobody's believing me, but something's not right. I'm not feeling right. And people were like, well, maybe, you know, it's just like the solitude is getting to you, right? Like, you know, whatever. And he's like, no, no, no. Like something's really not right. Like I, I'm seeing rays from my cell and I don't understand where those rays are coming from and it ended up being that the United States was shooting these rays that were causing him chemical burns so you know another big issue that happened in Puerto Rico that my family also has a history with this is um, what we called calvetas I really don't know how to say that in English but I know that the African-American community went through the same thing in the United States where the U.S. government was just literally taking in all their information um, and creating like a folder and they were infiltrating people to turn on them, whether it was family members and friends. I think of it as COINTELPRO, what you often yes. hear around with the Black Panther Party most specifically. Yes. But they also, so, COINTELPRO was tapping everybody, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. So it was definitely something like Colonel Pro. So yeah, so then we had these carpetas, which my great grandfather has one. And when he was older, he was like losing his mind on his honestly was old age, you know, um, 110. So I remember like I would always be sitting with him and he'd be like, um, 
they're watching me. They're watching me is what he would always say. And I would always be a little freaked out because I'm like, oh, what's watching you? I don't know. I don't see anything. I'm the only one here. So I would always be a little bit afraid. Um, and then um, my family was like, no, he's always been saying that. He's been saying that since like we were little. And I'm like, but why is he saying such a thing? So then we ended up finding that he did have a calpeta and that's what he meant. He was being watched. And, you know, he is just one out of the millions of Puerto Ricans who had a calpeta. And we still believe that it's still happening to this day. Um, there's a lot of Puerto Rican activists that still know for a fact um, they have carpetas just by the things that happened to them. But basically, strategically during this time, the carpetas were meant to document who was part of the nationalist movement, where they were from, um, how many members, if they had children, if they had a spouse, how much money they gained, um, and things like that. So then with that, they would then pay off people in their family or friends to snitch on them um and then on top of that then the united states government would then determine what schools their children would go to how much um in taxes they would get back and things like that so like my great-grandfather was one who would always say they give me very little taxes and i don't understand why and it was all strategically so in his carpeta it does say that you know we're going to withhold this much and we're gonna do this much we're gonna do this much right Another issue was uh, my grandparents' schooling. So like he was always saying, why, are, why do my kids have to go to the furthest school when there's a school right here next to me? Um, again, it was a strategy by the US government. He was one of the millions that were going through this. So um, in the 2000s, the US wanted to burn these carpetas. They wanted to burn them off because they said that it was a very sad time in US history. And there was a big uh, movement um, again, by the nationalists that are still there today, because um, now you have the nationalist movement in Puerto Rico that is not as big as it once was. But um, then you also have different movements happening. So you have the nationalist movement, then you have the independence movement, then you have the Black liberation movement in Puerto Rico, and then you have the Black radical feminist movement, all of them which have the common theme of liberation and um, independence for Puerto Rico, but all from different angles right so you have all these groups band together and the 2000s and say you can't burn those documents <laughs> that's literally like evidence of what has happened here um so then they end up passing a supreme court ruling they said yeah we can't because it's um historical information so again these things are still happening today so from the 50s we have to think about the 60s and the 60s was definitely a little bit more um violent in the sense that the violence was now taking place by Puerto Ricans themselves. So Puerto Ricans with power and Puerto Ricans that were very well connected with the United States that had status within the United States were now helping the U.S. Um, suppress people in Puerto Rico. So you have the very famous case of Cerro Maravilla, and that's very sad. So you have two, again, pro-independent movement men, very, very vocal activists for the movement, and then you have the pro-statehood party in um, Puerto Rico and the, the leader at the time. And what he ends up doing is he ends up creating this very twisted plot to get two of these young men killed, execution style, because they were making too much ruckus when it came to Puerto Rican independence. Again, a lot of people believe that the United States had a very big um, influence in that case. It's still a case that strikes the nerve of a lot of Puerto Ricans still to this day and it happened in the 60s 
it was recently the anniversary of that incident. And recently the person who called the shots had passed away. And it's a very, very sensitive spot for a lot of Puerto Ricans when we think about that case, because it just shows how deep U.S. imperialism goes and also how whiteness is extended to the ruling class in Puerto Rico. You answered like half my questions. I'm like, okay, where should we go from here? I mean, I think one thing I definitely do want us to just sort of talk about in context is, so we've talked about various liberation movements and peoples for independence, but presently, what is sort of the positioning between people who may advocate for like statehood versus obviously independence? And what exactly does citizenship mean for Puerto Rico today? You, you mentioned Hurricane like Irma and Maria from 2017, right? These are supposed to be Puerto Rican citizens who basic rights are not guaranteed or are not allotted by the U.S. Right. So um, start with the statehood and the independence movement. So the statehood philosophy, it's very complex, right? So basically what they're saying, the downright, right, like if we dilute it all is they want to become a U.S. state. Um, however, it's the reasons why they want to become a U.S. state. So they want to become a U.S. state because one, um, they can file for bankruptcy. Um, U.S. states can file for bankruptcy and they could get help from the United States. So Puerto Rico, unfortunately, has a very big debt that they're trying to pay back. But however, that debt was also created by the United States. So go figure. Like a number of other Caribbean islands. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So um, that's one of the biggest reasons of the modern day statehood movement, right? So they want to become a state because they can file for bankruptcy. They want to become a state because then the constitution finally will apply completely to the island. Another reason is we already have the citizenship. So why not just give us the status? Like it's done, right? And then another would be just the governmental help that they feel like they would get. I don't know how much of all of that is true. Um, I think in theory, it makes sense. However, in practice, I think that's where the statehood party kind of loses ground. It does have a lot, a big following, but it, with the older generation. So basically the older generation of Puerto Ricans who really do, I don't know, they had to survive. They survived a lot of things. So they really do feel that that's the way to go. And also thinking of all the historical events I just talked about, like those are things that definitely impacted them into being very pro-statehood. And also because there's a big Puerto Rican diaspora in the United States. So you might as well just make it a state. We're everywhere. That's one of the biggest things is we're literally everywhere. And also you would get representation in Congress. You need representatives, you need senators um, and things like that. So if you could get all these things, it would benefit the island, but it will also benefit the parties, the dominant parties on the island, the political parties. And then on the flip side, one of the reasons why the United States doesn't want to grant statehood is because one, um, in the early 1800s, they made it very clear that Puerto Rico was considered an unincorporated territory. So meaning that we could give them this, that, and the third, but in no way, shape, or form, they're gonna be part of this alliance. That's one. The second definitely would be Puerto Rico, honestly, in the eyes of the United States, is too Black. They do not want to grant statehood because then it would change the demographic completely. 
for the United States, and they do not want that. If they could continue to um, conserve their whiteness, that's exactly what they're going to do. But they know that if they were to accept Puerto Rico and the union, that would change. Also, culturally and linguistically, Puerto Rico is completely different. They've already made very, very vocal um, announcements on that. And then honestly, the last part, which is one of the biggest part is Puerto Rico is very, very much democratic. It's very blue and they don't wanna do that because they know for a fact that the Democrats would win these elections in Puerto Rico. So taking all this into consideration it then just becomes a cycle of things. So then on the flip side, the independence party does this counter argument where it's like, just decolonize us. You say you're the land of the free. You say you want to help the, um, other countries become free. You literally fight in their wars for they so they can become free. But you have us here, and you know, in this headlock, and you're not letting us go. Um, just give it to us. It would be beneficial for us, and it would be beneficial for you. Just let it let it go. Also, uh, the preservation of culture and language. That's very very big. Definitely, the independence movement fears a lot that. Um, the Puerto Rican culture will be lost if we were to become a state. They fear that Spanish is also going to be lost. Um, but we could also talk about how that's problematic as a whole. But those are just holding on to the cultural aspects is very important for the independence movement. Also, they want to be in alliance with Jamaica, Cuba, DR and Haiti and all these other things, they really want that Caribbean alliance. And that's a very big factor that plays into that. And also just plain right, the United States is racist. We see what they do all the time on the mainland. They do it here in our homeland. Like we don't want any part of it. So you definitely have these very two um, different narratives, but they do have a common ground. And, I, and that's so painful for me to say, because I'm very much so not um, pro-statehood, but they do have a common ground. And it's, they're really trying to look for a spot where Puerto Rico some way, somehow benefits. Because both parties are aware that Puerto Rico is not benefiting. However, it's really important to know that there is a third movement that's an in-between that just wants to remain how it is. They don't care. Um, and that um, group of people, that movement of people is actually very, very big. But um, right now we're seeing a shift where the pro-independence movement is becoming bigger. Well, I was going to ask, what are your hopes for Puerto Rico moving forward? But I think we know <laughs> based off our discussion today. Um, I will ask then my favorite question. When I think of Puerto Rico and culture, I think of reggaeton um, most specifically. But what are your favorite examples of how Puerto Rican history shows up through popular culture? Wow. Yeah. I really think um, the flag. I love that. Um, when I moved the stateside, I saw so many flags everywhere. And I was like, that's so cool. And like the fact that like I could have my flag outside and nobody that's non-Puerto Rican is going to ask me if I'm Puerto Rican because they know that's the Puerto Rican flag. That's amazing because that just shows um, how much of a cultural and identity impact um, Puerto Ricans have outside of a small island. Um, so I think that's really cool. And also just reggaeton, like everybody knows reggaeton, everybody hears reggaeton, and the first thing they think of is Puerto Rico. So I think that's really, really cool. Oyago, stay tuned for Strictly Fact Sounds, where we connect our history to pop culture.
Now, this is a Strictly Fact Sounds. There was so much art and culture related to our episode on Puerto Rico that it was difficult to choose. First, we recommend checking out song Lamento Boricano, first written by Puerto Rican composer and songwriter Rafael Hernandez Marin in 1929. Current artist Mark Anthony popularized a more recent version of the song that describes the harsh conditions local farmers endured. Next, read poem Ay 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 de la Grifa Negra, first published by nationalist poet Julia de Burgos in 1938. She was also the Secretary General of the Women's Branch of the Nationalist Party. Translated to Ayayay of the Kinky-Haired Negress, the speaker of the poem celebrates her Blackness while also historicizing Puerto Rico's complex history of slavery, colonialism, and power. And lastly, out of the many songs to choose from, listen to the 2019 song Afilando los Cuchillos, or Sharpening the Knives by Puerto Rican artist Residente, Ile, and Bad Bunny. Sharpening the Knives became a local protest anthem as countless people across the island called for the then governor to resign after a series of his very problematic conversations were leaked to the public. Beautiful, Nina. Thank you so much for joining us and talking Puerto Rican history with us today. Please let everybody know where they can find you on social media. Yes, um, please follow me on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is Nina and then it's VZQZ23. And again, on Twitter, it's Nina VZQZ23. And I honestly just follow me. I love to talk. Um, I'm usually always talking about reggaeton or hip-hop or um, just historical facts in general, and that's really my thing. And you can also follow me on Instagram. Um, it's literally my name, what I just gave you guys for my Twitter handle, except without the 23 and no vowels. So it's just the regular letters and no vowels, so you can follow me. Got you. I will link it in our show notes below. That's how we virtually met via social media, yes. so it all works out. So yes, Nina, again, thank you so much for joining us. As I said, um, links to where to follow Nina will be in our show notes, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Yeah. Little more, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us at Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Strictly Facts PD on Twitter.